This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience. My first flight was an international one. I was born in a small town in Germany, and our family was making its way to the U.S. I was just a few months old. My brother would come into the world after we had already made our home in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He and I eventually found careers in the aviation industry, where we still work today. In 1974, the writer and radio broadcaster Studs Terkel wrote Working. It's a book about people talking about their jobs, and it's one of the first grown-up books that I read as a teenager. Back then, I didn't finish many books, so that says a lot about him and his interviews. Some of my podcast interviews are a nod to that book, like my earlier episodes with a makeup artist, a hospice chaplain, a politician, and a policeman. In this episode, I talked to two flight attendants. They still work, so I'm keeping their identities private. And just for fun, they've taken on the aliases Thelma and Louise. Like the movie, but without Brad Pitt and without the crimes. Together, they have around 80 years of experience. Why did you want to become a flight attendant, Thelma? Well, I grew up close to the airport. My dad was a Boston policeman, so he probably had one Sunday off a month. And we were both fascinated with the airport. As little, I was probably five, four or five. So we used to go to the airport chapel and then walk around the airport. And I was hooked. That was it for me seeing crews in that uniform and my dad loving the airplane and we just went and had breakfast and loved it. Louise. I was working out of college. I was working these jobs where I didn't have much time off, no flexibility, and I was pretty adventurous. And I saw a little ad in the Boston Globe for Arrow Air flight attendant and I applied and that was 40 years later, I'm still doing it. In the old days, flight attendants, they couldn't get married, they couldn't have kids, they were subject to strict weight limits, some were made to wear provocative uniforms, and... I started in 1981. There was the weight issue. We did get weighed, I believe, once a year, and uh, they were really strict about it, too, and it didn't go away until 1994, so, you know, that was always uh, very intimidating. I started in 1985, and in order to get hired, you could you had to be taller than 5'2", and there was a, a weight requirement, and we had to get weighed every year, and the weight was allowed to fluctuate up with your age, so there was a chart uh, with weight related to how old you were, and if you were over, you were on weight check, and you had to go in and get weighed like every three weeks until you met your goal. Otherwise, if you didn't meet the goal of the weight required, then you were fired. How many weeks and what was your initial training like? Thelma? My training was six weeks. It was in Pittsburgh. One day off, I believe, in those six weeks. They really, really just, you know, could wake you up at five in the morning and evacuate an airplane. It was, um, I don't know, you were just constantly, it was, it was intense. And I started in 1985, and my training was with Piedmont Airlines, and it was three weeks. And it was unpaid, and um, it was a lot of safety and first aid. 
And my daughter just got hired and her training was six weeks. And they really try to intimidate them. She was very nervous during the whole training and worried about getting sent home. And it was some days were 12 hours for her. You know, they had all these tests and you could only, you had to get a 90 or above. And two times, if you got less than 90, they would just send you home. And I know some people in her class got sent home in the last few weeks. And also, it's still not paid for six weeks. And I think they put you under pressure to see how you would react on the airplane. Sexist hiring practices were at the heart of your industry's business model until things started to change with the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. Back then, airlines marketed flight attendants as sex objects. And national airlines even had a campaign that said, I'm Cheryl, fly me. Have either of you experienced sexual harassment or assault on the job? I have not personally. Um, I had some friends from Braniff that came over to Piedmont, and they would tell stories about their uniforms and how they'd have to do this uh, uniform change in front of the people, like they take off certain garments during the flight and end up in kind of a skimpier uniform. For those younger generations who weren't around back then, tell us what it was like as a flight attendant and as a passenger back in the 80s, Louise. Well, the biggest thing I remember was the smoking. Um, smoking was allowed on the plane, and we had these little placards that we would, normally it was like the last three rows of the plane they could smoke, and they had these little placards which were movable depending on how many smokers were on the plane. And if they couldn't accommodate all the non-smokers, like say there was one non-smoker and the only seat left was in the last row, they would have to make the whole airplane non-smoking. And the flight attendants were so happy when that happened because the smoke on the plane was awful. Like if you were in the back jump seat, you were with all the smokers. And right after we took off, everybody lit up and there was just this cloud of smoke and it was horrendous. I remember going home and I wouldn't even bring my uniform into the house. I would hang it outside because everything just reeked of smoke. So that was the biggest uh, thing that I remember. It was 1987 when that federal smoking ban went into effect. We were all so happy. Explain how a flight attendant can be based in one city yet live in another city. For a while there, I was in Philadelphia for about 10 years. And so I was commuting Boston to Philly. And commuting, it's amazing how many people, I mean, there's people I'd fly with that commute from Geneva, London, Paris, all over the world. And they would fly in and spend time at a hotel, like, you know, nine days, and just fly, do nothing but fly and then go home for 10 days and come back. And, you know, it, it can be stressful, but the trips were phenomenal in Philly. I mean, I got to do international, so it was my first introduction to doing uh, Rome and Venice and Madrid and Barcelona, and it was so eye-opening. I, I just loved it. I loved it. Louise? When I first got hired, I was um, worked for Piedmont, and there was no Boston base. So I was based in Norfolk. And lucky for me, I was only on reserve one month, and then I started to commute. And um, I worked my way back up to Boston because Piedmont got purchased by U.S. Air. But then U.S. Air closed Boston. So a whole bunch of us, it was three or 400 of us, either quit or started to commute or moved. But by then, you know, you have children and they're in school 
and you never know what's going to happen in the future. So you, you don't want to move. And then all of a sudden that base closes. So we commute and we don't get positive space flying down there. It's all space available. So that's why it's stressful. Um, that means you're not sure if you're going to make the flight. That's right. So you really had to kind of go early and have some backups. And as a flight attendant, you're also allowed to fly the jump seat, but you have to compete with other flight attendants for the jump seat. So sometimes we would kind of call each other, like, what flight are you going on? Or, And then once you get there, um, because you try to go early, you might have to sit around for hours. And um, they did have in the crew rooms, they had restrooms that were totally dark and they had recliner chairs so we could take naps there. And if you did two trips in a row, which seemed to help us, uh, you'd have to pay for your own hotel in between the trips. But we had people like um, U.S. Air bought PSA. So we had a lot of people from California and U.S. Air ended up closing all those bases. And so all those people from California would commute to Philadelphia. And that's a really long commute. So it was probably the hardest on them. For us, it was just about an hour to Philly. Explain how your work schedule operates and how seniority impacts that. Um, in the airline, seniority is everything. And you would bid for a block for each month. So next week, we're going to be bidding for August. And you put in for trips. So it's right now, it's all computerized. You'd have to put your trips into the computer by a certain date. And then within a few days, you'd get your schedule. And then it's so flexible in that we have this computer trip trade system where you could um, trade trips on the computer or drop them. So it, it is so flexible. And with my seniority, I was able to get really good trips. So say my kids had something came up in school, I could drop a trip within seconds. I just put it in the computer, someone would pick it up and it'd be gone and I'd be off. And that's one of the major reasons why we like our job so much and nobody leaves. So I have uh, 38 years and I'm still not really that senior. There's, there's, I'm probably in the top 20% from the company. Louise, are you a union member? And if so, how has having had that representation impacted your career? Yes, um, we all have to be part of the union and we pay union dues every month. Um, but not every flight attendant is a member of a union on every carrier. That's true. Uh, Delta, I believe, is the only large carrier that's non-unionized. Although they bought Northwest and Northwest was with the Teamsters. So they tried to get the Teamsters into Delta when they bought Northwest, but it got voted down basically because there were more Delta flight attendants than Northwest. Um, but currently, I believe they're trying to get a union in the Delta and I think when the, this is just my opinion, but when the management um, hears of uh, them being proactive trying to get the union in, they kind of up their pay or they they give them uh, more, you know, like the boarding pay. Throw them a bone. They throw them a bone. Delta is now beginning to pay flight attendants during the boarding process, but this only came up around the time of Union talks? That, that's what I've heard, yes. And I don't think that we were aware of that. I wasn't aware of that as a yeah, member of the flying public. Our flight pay starts when the door closes. 
So we have to arrive at the airport. We have to check in one hour before flight time. And during that time, depending on the size of the airplane, you have to be on the plane either 30 minutes up to 45 minutes prior to the flight time leaving, departure time, I should say. So everybody is required to be part of the union. We do pay union dues. And I think the unions, for flight attendants anyways, have had its ups and downs. There are different union representations. Some are in-house and some are not. I prefer the not in-house union. And they guarantee us a lot, like as far as a minimum day pay or, you know, if if you get in trouble for calling in sick, they'll represent you. Um, currently, we get points for being sick. And if you get too many points, you get disciplined or you could get fired. Um, so none of us agree with that. The pilots don't get points. Have you ever been furloughed or forced to take a pay cut or benefit cut? Well, I was furloughed when I worked for Arrowware, which was probably a good thing for me because it forced me to go work for a regular airline, which I've, you know, been blessed with this long career. You mean like a legacy carrier? A legacy carrier. Carriers. When I was with Piedmont, we had A and B scales. And um, then when we merged with US Air, my hire date with Piedmont was a A scale date. So my salary went up $10,000 overnight. Um, there was 400 of us in that category. So I was happy with that. But then when US Air went through two bankruptcies, we took huge pay cuts. Uh, our work rules changed. <clears throat> our medical over the years has gone down more expensive. Um, not as much covered. We used to have great medical. Now it's still good, but not as good as it used to be. Louise, what are you responsible for doing on each flight as a flight attendant? Um, When we first get on the plane, we have to check all of our emergency equipment, uh, make sure that everything is, they have seals that shows that everything is intact and hasn't been used. Um, We have a briefing with the captain. He discusses the weather, any safety issues, The crew meets because sometimes you might not have worked with a specific crew member. So you want to make sure everybody knows each other and you want to go over some serving procedures, make sure everybody's on the same page. We check catering. That's a big thing because there's always something missing. Want to make sure that we have everything. We look at the manifest and see how many wheelchairs, if we're going to have Um, air marshals on or if we have unaccompanied minors or people with disabilities that we need to know about. Louise, the FAA says since 2021, they logged 7,000 plus incidents of unruly passengers, which they say is a record. What have you seen on your flights? I believe those issues are mostly due to the mask. And we had to be like the mask police. And it was awful. Um, You'd get these young kids with the mask around their chins and you'd have to ask them five or six times and they'd be rolling their eyes and and it's you know the people sit next to them want us to do it because they don't want to sit next to someone without a mask on so there was a lot of controversy because we had to enforce this mask mandate 
I've noticed that some flight attendants over the years do a really good job of de-escalating situations that look like they're going to get out of control. What kinds of tactics do you use or what have you been taught in terms of dealing with people? You just try not to argue. You, you listen, you analyze, and then you try to give a solution and say you're sorry if it's something that you know your airline did. Thelma? The big misconception, I think, which I still find kind of funny, is passengers really believe that that seat is like their names on it. You know, like to get somebody to move from 10D to 10C because I would like the two children to sit together or something is, it's unbelievable. It's they really- They get real territorial, huh? Oh. oh, no, no, I'm not moving. It's like, I'm stunned. Like they, they're not more adaptable. They just are really fixated on, no, this is my seat. We used to have these planes that had only a couple of rows where the armrests would go up. And those were good if you had a wheelchair passenger. It was easier for them to slide into the seat. So we had this wheelchair, wheelchair passenger get on towards the end of the flight. Almost everybody was on the plane. And there was a gentleman in that aisle seat with the armrest that went up. And the seat behind him, an aisle seat, was open. So we asked him very kindly if he would move back for this wheelchair passenger, and he said no. So we said, sir, we're just wondering, why would you not move back to accommodate you know, someone with a disability? And he said, well, if something happens to the plane, I want to be in my assigned seat. So my coworker said to him, sir, if something happens to this plane, you're going to be all over the place. It doesn't matter what seat you're in. The whole plane, they were listening. They started clapping and cheering. So the guy moved back and the wheelchair passenger got the right seat. I'd like to add that what I thought was wonderful, and I've seen it happen so many times, if the military guy got on, that a businessman or a woman in first class would give up their seat in first class. Many times I saw that happen, and I was, I was totally blown away by that. And one of the stories I could tell you is um, she wasn't military, but I had this woman come on who obviously was going through cancer treatments. It was going to, we were going to New York, and Katie Couric came on with her assistant, and she wanted to sit with her assistant, even though her assistant was in coach and Katie was in first class. So Katie comes to the back and says, how do I handle this? And I explained about the woman who was in the coach, and she said, no, give her my seat in first class. And so I can sit with, and on top of it, Katie Couric also said, where you're going for your treatment, my drivers, I can drive you right there. And I just was like so touched by that. I thought that was really great. You came across Dolly Parton once. Oh, she was so lovely. Thelma. She's so tiny. Yes, her waist is 18 inches. She's a peanut. Five scotches. Wow, she can throw them back. And the guys would send her up, send her up. She charmed them like no other. They loved it. There's not a phony bone in her body. No. And that's why we all love her. I know. You can't help but love her. She was a great lady. Years ago, John Mellencamp. I mean, a lot of people. think. Oh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Which interesting people have you come across in your line of work, Louise? So I had um, Emma Watson on from Harry Potter, and this was when Harry Potter first came out. She was tiny, and she was going to school at Brown University, and at the time, we would sell snacks, and when I went to her row, she had no money, <laughs> so I just gave her a free snack. I thought that was funny. I had Joe Biden on before he was president, 
and he's really a very thin and small. I had John Kerry, Shirley MacLaine, James Earl Jones. I had Ted Kennedy. And when we went through bankruptcy, they really cut our sick pay and our sick benefits. And he was very interested in that. And he actually went and did something about it. So that was a positive. I had Harry Connick Jr. He was in first class and somebody in coach knew that he was up there and they happened to have his CD. So they asked me if I would have him sign it. And normally I wouldn't bother him, but I figured if they had his CD, he'd be happy about that. And he just said to me, I'm just trying to get from point A to point B and he wouldn't sign it. I had um, the Munchkins from The Wizard of Oz. They, they, had, they had a jacket, well, they were small. And then they had a jacket on with like this embroidered munchkin insignia on the back. So I talked to them and there's a, a munchkin convention that they have all the time. No. And, <laughs> that sounds so funny. and they told me that there weren't that many left because he was like in his 80s. Um, I had Chewie from Star Wars. <laughs> he was on my flight. What does he look like underneath he the fur? He is so tall and skinny. But the best one I had on for me personally was Bill Belichick because my son at the time, he was playing peewee football and they just won the state championship for the Amherst Patriots. In New Hampshire. In New Hampshire. I had a picture of him in my bag holding the trophy. And so I thought, oh, I got to ask him to sign this for my son. So I went up to him and I said, Bill, is there any chance you could sign this for my son? He just won state championship. So he said, absolutely. And he wrote, dear Cody, work hard on the field and in school. Congratulations on your state championship, Super Bowl. And at the time they had won three Super Bowls. So he wrote each of the three Super Bowls on. And that picture is still hanging in my son's room. That's nice. Yeah, that was my best one. I did also on an overnight, I went to the, when the Patriots played in London, I wanted to go to that game, so I bid that trip purposely. And I was um, based in Philly at the time, and they were all Steelers fans, so nobody wanted to go to see the Patriots. They were playing the Rams. So I went by myself, and I had at home I had printed off the stadium seating because if I was going to go, I wanted to get a good seat. So when I got off the train, um, there was a whole bunch of scalpers, and I ended up getting a seat six rows from the Patriots sideline, 50-yard line, and it, it was it was awesome. Were either of you flying on 9-11? I was not. I was stuck in Toronto, and uh, I went up there to visit a girlfriend. I had had three weeks vacation because my nephew got married in California, but my father was, um, hospice was there. He was dying. And so, no, it's okay. He died 921. He was a Boston policeman for 41 years. So I had gone up there because I had so much vacation time. I went up on Monday and of course, Wednesday, we all know what happened. And, um, again, that was such an experience because five days later, you know, people were leaving cars at the border. It was, it was unbelievable. I was not flying on 9-11. I was home with my kids, and I promised them a book. We went to Barnes & Noble, and my dad called called me and told me what happened. And um, when they shut down all the flying, I remember my first trip back. It was probably a month later because I had a lot of Boston-Washington shuttle flights, which were shut down for a lot longer than the rest of the flights. 
But I remember coming back to the airport and how eerie it was. There was nobody there and no one in security, no one in the terminal. It's just nobody was flying. It was really eerie. I've never seen it like that before. When I did go back to flying, I remember having a psychiatrist on my airplane and we were talking about it. And he said to me, I'm not trying to be negative, but I'm you wait and see. I said, it's so wonderful. People are treating everybody like you wish you, you lived in this world all the time. And he said, three months. Give it three months. And I'm thinking, okay. Then we'll be back to our by normal Christmas, selves. Yeah. By Christmas, it was like, <laughs> okay, it's over. <laughs> Did it make you think twice about your career, about staying no, because I'm just a believer in, you know what I mean? My time's up, my time's up. I've always thought that. Did it make you think twice, Louise? I feel the same as Thelma. I just feel like there's nothing you can do about it. Why waste the energy worrying about it? When your time's up, your time's up. You know, there's quite a few stories about people who traded trips. Yes. And they lost their lives. And and I, I think to myself, wow. And they have survivor's guilt, some of them. Yeah. Yeah. I did hear from some other flight attendants that apparently there was more planes that were targeted, but because they shut everything down, um, those planes never took off. So, Because I know they were contacted by the FBI, some of the flight attendants that were on these other planes, asking questions about what they noticed on that flight. There were also stories of agents that, you know, didn't know and let these men on that um, in certain cities. And like we talked about, the guilt of that for them was horrific. Didn't know they let on uh, an imminent hijacker. Yes. Yes. Have either of you been to the 9-11 Museum in New York City? And what were your impressions, if so? I was just blown away. I, I thought it was so well done. It, it was... It was beautiful. It was really beautiful. I think about 9-11 all the time. Nine, you know, like I said, my dad passed away nine twenty one, but I'll never, we'll never forget. None of us will ever, ever forget, you know. I've also been to the museum, and I remember they had a special line for firefighters, policemen, and crew members that you could bypass the big line to get in. The whole thing was just very well done, very emotional. <clears throat> and I also recently saw the play Come From Away, and that was really good, especially being a crew member. So Scott Keyes, I read, he's the founder of Scott's Cheap Flights newsletter, and he said that the disruption of the airline industry over the past two years is unlike anything we've ever seen in travel. He said the 9-11 attacks caused a 7% drop in overall travel, but 2020 travel was down 70% and airlines were in basically survival mode, then the travel rebounded quicker than they anticipated. So that created this perfect storm that we're now in. How did COVID impact you and your job? I was based in Philadelphia, flying international. And on March 13th, they totally shut down all international travel. And I was the last flight back from Amsterdam <clears throat> And then the airlines paid us for that month. And then they offered paid leaves through October because the government offered to pay as long as they didn't lay anybody off. So I was fortunate enough to have enough seniority to get six months off paid paid leave to stay home because of COVID because they just didn't need anybody. And then when I came back, the flights were empty. 
Um, I flew not right away, but when London came back, I flew planes with 30 people on a huge 300 seater airplane. So it was, um, it was kind of nice for us. One of my friends, he was the only person on a flight from Florida to here. It yeah. was a very common thing. I was also fortunate enough, like Louise, to be able to take time off when they offered it. So I ended up taking a year. But it was really eye-opening. I was, I was glad I did because sometimes you think, you know, as you towards the end of your career, am I going to be able to let go of this? You know, you've just been so used to. It's your identity. Yeah, it really, really is in all the good, on all good ways. Like I have no desire to retire, but it taught me that. Like I'm not ready to retire by any means, but when and if I do, I will be ready to let go. What are some travel hacks? Like I used to always pack or check a bag when I go overseas for seven, 10 days. Now I never do. I only have the roll-on bag that hopefully I can carry onto the plane and a small backpack. I'm the same way. I went 15 days to Ireland, 15 days to Greece. It's a rollerboard and a bag. And What are some other hacks? Roll them up. What do you know that I don't know about packing, traveling? Roll in your clothes, for one thing. You can fit a lot more when you roll your clothes. I think wear the heaviest things you're going to wear, like on the airplane. People tend to, um, you know, always have shorts. It's chilly on an airplane. They never bring a sweater. They, you know, I think dress warm. You can always, you know, and the clothes are bulkier. So wear those things on the airplane, and all the lighter clothes are in your suitcase. I always take um, an extension cord with like a, a multi-plug unit at the end of it because there's usually one plug by the bed. And nowadays you have your iPad, your phone. We have a tablet from the company. We have so many things that have to be charged. So I never leave without that. Louise, what are some of your favorite countries or cities or sites to visit when you have free time? Well, probably my favorite cities would be um, Rome is at the very top. I love Rome. I love the food. I just feel comfortable there. There's this one restaurant we go to all the time where this woman is in the window and she's sitting at a table and she's just making the pasta, rolling it out, fresh pasta. And a, a lot of these restaurants we go to, we go there so often that they know us. And, and, but, um, before COVID, we, we had really good flights out of Philadelphia that, that we worked. We did, went to Prague and Budapest and Dubrovnik. Love those cities. Thelma, what are your favorites? Rome will always be at the list, followed by Venice. I love Venice. I'll never be done with Italy. Let's just leave it that, leave it at that. I felt very safe in Rome, no. just myself and my daughter. And the Absolutely. public transportation is great, and it's easy to walk. And it's just like an outdoor museum everywhere. And then you go into a church, and what, Michelangelo? No, I can't, wow. pass, I can't pass a church without going in, and it's beautiful. It's just beautiful there. What has travel taught you about people? I really enjoy all the different cultures that people bring. Um, it's interesting how people can live so differently. Yet still get along. Yeah. yeah. Like when you work the Tel Aviv flights, um, they have some religious things that they do at sundown. You know, they have to um, face a certain way on the airplane. And normally we don't like people up and about all the time, but on those flights, you have to accommodate them because it's uh, very important to them. So they all get up and sometimes they come in the galley and they want to face a certain way at sundown. So that's interesting. And we have um, special meals. 
on those Tel Aviv flights, we probably have 40 kosher meals that we have to give out. I just wanted to add to that by saying, you know, you do the Germany flights, and the Germans very rarely get up. They're just very... They love order. I'm half German. You do Athens? (laughs) Nobody's in their seats. (laughs) Everybody's up. (laughs) Same with the Italians. And when you do um, flights to Amsterdam, they don't buy anything. They're they're very um, frugal. So... Are personal relationships common among crew members? Yes, but I think it's also common, you know, in the offices of Boston or any other city. It's just that maybe you'd notice it more. I think flight attendants tend to be closer because um, we're working long days um, under can be stressful conditions. And then you're on an overnight and you do stuff socially with them too. You you get together and you go out to dinner or you take a nice long walk. Um, so over the years, most of my close friends are from work. Louise, do you have some funny stories? I have one story. So we, we were pretty much all boarded and this gentleman gets on to sit in first class and he has one of those old garment bags and he wants to put in the overhead bin. And I was doing pre-departure beverages. So I had my hands full with drinks and he I could tell he was mad because it looked like the bins were full up there so he said can you help me and I said sure I'd be glad to help you I'm just gonna finish delivering these drinks well he didn't want to wait so one of the bins probably had a bunch of pillows and blankets in it back when we had those and he decided he was just going to take them all out and put his bag in there so he pulled them all out of the bin threw them on the floor in the aisle put his bag in there and just sat down. And everybody around was like looking at him. And then I just went up to him and I said, sir, was that really necessary? I think the passengers were happy. I called him out on it. Any disturbing stories? Another time when we used to fly the DC-8, there was a jump seat in the back and it was wedged between two bathrooms. It was really tight back there. One of the aisle seats was almost right in front of my jump seat. And that's where we would put our tote bag. So my tote bag was under this woman's seat that was in front of me. And she had a cat and a, and a carrier, which was in the seat in front of her, under that seat. Everybody was deplaning, and they were almost all off. And I go to pull out my tote bag, and there's cat poop all over my bag. How did that happen? So apparently this woman, she was like in her... 60. She wasn't like a young kid or anything. Her cat must have gone to the bathroom in the carrier and she had had a towel laying down. So instead of asking me or telling a crew member that this happened and asked for a a trash bag to get rid of it, she decided to roll it up in her towel and shove it under her seat, which was where my bag was. So there was cat feces all over my bag. So I ran off the airplane And I went to the agent and I asked where that woman in that seat number was going because we landed in Charlotte. I figured she had a connection. So I went over to the gate and I found the woman (laughs) and I called her out on it. And I said, I'd like to know why you did that. Why didn't you ask one of us for a bag? Now we have to have cleaners come on. They have to, it's on the rug. It's all over my bag. And I said, you know, I could ask this agent not to let you take the cat on the next flight. Well, her lips started quivering because she realized she made a mistake and what she did wasn't right. And she apologized and I just had to let it go. What heartwarming and or heartbreaking stories do you have? 
We have a lot of um, Make-A-Wish families come on our planes. And what our airline does is they decorate the whole gate. It's got all these balloons and signs and everything for the Make-A-Wish person, wherever they're going, usually to Disney World. <clears throat> they get on and we give them wings and they get to go in the cockpit. And it's that's those are pretty heartwarming. What serious issues have you faced during flights? Medical, weather? Uh, often people ask me about weather. But to me, when it's thunderstorms, I think you start really realizing how much that plane is just like a piece of paper in the sky. It's like, it's it's scary. Or, or birds hitting the cockpit window. But my story, I used to do these San Juan one-day trips on Sunday morning. And more than half the airplane was newlyweds from Saturday. And I could never figure out why they didn't want to enjoy their time and leave on Monday. But anyway, having said that, they looked exhausted. They were from having sex. Yeah, man, we got really no sleep. <laughs> you know, you still hung over. Hung over. <laughs> and this gentleman, I was working for his class. I'm coming around with a tray to put down, and this guy comes towards me, and he's like swaying, spins around, and just knocks the tray, everything, and his head whacks the cockpit door. Captain, when the captain, um, the phone rang, and I picked it up, and he said, "Heck, was that? It sounded like a." bullet and i i was like somebody fainted and they you know and um the airlines always you know they teach us in training the very first thing to do is just pick up the pa and see if there's a doctor on board and or a nurse or and, and i've been lucky i mean usually there usually is you know emt somebody in the medical field and um at this time was no different a husband and wife came and revived him, you know, he had just passed out. But, you know, we were trying to make light of it because she comes running up his wife. And I said, you did say in sickness and in health. It's only been 24 <laughs> hours, but here we go. It's <laughs> a good one. When the crew announces a delay because of a mechanical issue or a weather issue, is that always the case? 99% of the time, they give you the truth. A lot of times, they don't really know what's going on yet. So there might be a, a lapse in an announcement, but it's only because we don't know or the pilots aren't really sure yet what's going on, you know, when maintenance is in there or if it's an ATC hold. And then the biggest thing I think is when there's a delay because of weather and then they call the, the destination city, like say they're going home and they call their family and they're like, there's no weather here, but it might not be the destination family. It's the weather in between that causes a problem. Right. The area between point A and B. What's your least favorite drink to serve and why? I would say decaf coffee because it's instant. It doesn't look good. And I always tell them it's instant. Would you still like it? And some of them say yes and some say no. What's the best way for passengers to show they appreciate you? Usually on international flights, it's most common to get gifts. They'll give us a Starbucks card, gift card, or they bring chocolates for us to share. Yeah. And we do appreciate that. Follow Diary of a Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review my work at Apple Podcasts.